Hello, church. We're going to be reading Acts chapter 25 and 26. I won't tell you where that's at in your pew Bibles, because that won't do you any good. But if you don't have a Bible, you can go to an online source like uh, BibleHub.com. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, so you can find that and then follow along with me. Uh, Acts 25 and 26. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to, the, to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If, then, I am a wrongdoer, and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you've appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, 
I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you'll hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that, after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins 
and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, I tried to brace you for some big chunks of God's word in this final home stretch of Acts, although you probably weren't prepared for that. Thanks, Eric. It's been a while since Eric has read, and he did so virtually, uh, but thanks for making up for lost time. Eric is often leading music and our songs for our kids and teaching them. So again, so grateful for Eric's ministry. What do we see from our friend Paul? Nothing surprising, nothing new. Paul was constantly and vigilantly looking for opportunities to preach the gospel. As he wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 9.16, he said, Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So whether he was in chains or free, whether he was healthy or sick or suffering, whether he was traveling to new cities and countries, or whether he was not able to leave his room, he considered every circumstance an opportunity, a gospel opportunity. And we need to hear that for our current circumstances. Whether we are healthy or sick or suffering, whether we are traveling about freely or not able to leave our room, do we consider every opportunity as a gospel opportunity, an opportunity to preach? Are we compelled to make known the good news? What would it mean to live like that? With no greater time than now, and I suppose that statement is always true, but the intensity 
and the urgency of our current cultural moment in response to this novel COVID-19 virus has certainly ratcheted up. Let's not be eager to return to a sense of normalcy as if that were possible, but let's be eager to preach the gospel without hesitation. The gospel is good news. It's life, healing, freedom, peace, joy, hope in Jesus. When most other news that we're hearing today is the exact opposite. Death, sickness, quarantine, anxiety, fear, sadness, depression, and despair. We need to remember that light shines most brightly in the darkness. So what an opportunity, a gospel opportunity. We've been praying for over a year now. Lord, awaken us. And what if God is answering that prayer right now? We mean awaken us, awaken the church, awaken your people to your presence and to your mission. So in this time, let us not cower or withdraw. Let us advance, even if that advancing is through prayer or through encouraging social media posts or through a deep and growing longing to gather freely again as his church. That time will come. And perhaps, and my hope is, that we will never take it for granted again. Much of this chunk of Acts, these two chapters, is repeat testimony by Paul. If you've been journeying along with us in our study through Acts, and you've heard a lot of these testimonies before, this is Paul's longest recorded sermon or message that we have in Acts. And I think we might summarize it in two sentences. Come and hear what Jesus has done for me. I was blind, but now I see. Forgive me, Paul, for summarizing an entire sermon in two sentences. I guess I should invite our church community to do the same. Does our testimony sound like that? Come and hear what Jesus has done for me. I was blind, but now I see. What makes this possible? Life, new life in Jesus, new sight because of his life, because he lives. See, everything hinges on his resurrection. It was central to Paul's preaching. It was central to his life. It is the central fact of our salvation and the foundation of our faith and hope. Why do you think Easter is the biggest day on our calendar? And we are grieving that we cannot celebrate it the same way this year. But may we long for the Easter celebrations to come. Paul preached the resurrection of Christ as central. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If in Christ, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are, of all people, most to be pitied. Well, at least Festus understood what the main dispute was about. In case you're confused, and I imagine so, Festus is the new Felix. I doubt that actually helped you. He's the governor of Caesarea, which is where Paul is being held prisoner. By historical records, Festus wasn't quite as corrupt as Felix, so good for him. But to be clear, he was no saint either. 
And while there was a lot of lies swirling and confusion abounding around Paul and why he was still being prisoner, Paul took the opportunity to cut right to the core. This is about the resurrection of Jesus. Let's not be mistaken. Acts 25, 18 and following. When Paul's accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. This is Festus speaking. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. In chapter 26, verse 6 and following, Paul says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And down in verse 22 of the same chapter, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Pause at that moment. It's at this same point, the same mention of Gentiles, the ethnic ones, the non-Jews by heritage, that everything changes. That, That Jesus would be the savior of all peoples. That's when things escalate in the room. There's verse 24. As Paul was saying these things, In his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Just like the Jews became incensed back in Acts 22. This is recorded in 22 verse 21. And he said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That was Jesus commissioning Paul and Paul is recounting it. He was speaking before the Jewish Sanhedrin and the crowds. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, and on and on, it went in uproar. Paul was relentlessly preaching the love and salvation of Jesus for all peoples. If we hope to preach and live the gospel of Jesus, then we must do the same. That's what I'm relentlessly calling us to, to love and pursue all peoples, to break bread at our tables with all peoples, even the least likely. This will break down walls. This is the ministry and the way of Jesus. But we find it, I find it interesting that we see the very same thing happening at both of the times when Paul is proclaiming the gospel. It comes to an uproar at the very point of proclaiming Jesus, life and death, love and pursuit, salvation for all peoples. As we begin, we must begin or continue in love and service to all peoples, in relationship. And as we build the relationship, may we have opportunity to then proclaim the hope that we have. If people would come to ask us, and they ask Catherine and I this all the time, why are you doing this? And we pray that we're ready and that the response isn't because we want to be nice or we want to be neighborly as we host people in our homes or as we go door to door just to check in on neighbors. There's often that response, 
of why. And you can even see it in their eyes sometimes when it's not voiced in their words. We want to respond in life and in word when we have opportunity. Not just to be that we are nice or want to be neighborly or because we care, although those are good motivations, but primarily because Jesus has called us to live like this, to express his love in everything we do. He gave up everything for us in order to give us life, and it's our call to do the same. How often do our conversations with our friends and our neighbors and our family get to this central point of the gospel? Do they know what we believe? And are they clear about what we rest our faith upon? I remember a friend of mine who's a pediatric physician. He said something that struck me and then has stuck with me. He said, Ben, I can believe everything else. I I believe in a God, but I just can't believe in the resurrection. Dead is dead. I thought I had a good response. I said, so you believe in a God, a, a divine power at least, who can create life, but you don't believe in the one who can recreate life. And he said, I guess so. I say, I guess so. Well, that takes unique faith. May we, we may give the best answer possible to every question that comes our way. We may be able to give the best possible testimony. Like Paul. Paul had an incredible testimony. Listen, my whole life dramatically changed. I was persecuting Christians. Now I am one. And now I'm willing to die for the claim which, which they believe, that Jesus has risen from the dead. We may have the best answer or the best testimony, and yet we are not in control of the response of people. Others may still dismiss us or our testimony. They may think we are out of our mind, just as Festus said to Paul. But let's be clear at what the center of the gospel is. Life Instead of death. And by the way, right now, people in our world and our community are tolerating a whole lot more, if not open to hear anything that sounds remotely like good news. We've got the best news ever life instead of death, hope instead of despair, freedom instead of bondage, healing in place of sickness. The results are not our responsibility, they're God's. But may we do two things that we may not often do. One, may we look for opportunities to get to the center of the gospel. And two, let's look for bold ways to ask others if they believe it. That's what Paul does. He takes that next step before this king, and not just any king. This is Herod Agrippa. He's the last ruler of the Herodians. His father persecuted the church. His father ordered the death of the apostle James, recorded in Acts 12. His great-grandfather, Herod, ordered the murder of all baby boys in Bethlehem, two years old and under at the time of Jesus. So here's his heritage. Paul is taking a great risk. He's risking his very life to be bold with the gospel and to ask Herod if he believes. In fact, the challenge that Herod does believe, we are often unwilling to risk our reputation. Acts 26, 27, Paul says 
to King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa responds to Paul, in just a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Such a bold proclamation of the gospel, willing to risk all, to ask the question, do you not believe? I was at a lunch a couple weeks ago at the mosque down the street with a handful of imams and rabbis and other local pastors, again, trying to be faithful to the call to break bread with all kinds of people, to build bridges, not walls. I was impressed by one of the pastors who said unapologetically, I'm an evangelical. I want all peoples to come to know Jesus. I would love to baptize everyone in this room. And yet that's not why I'm here today. I'm here to show you that I love you and I care about you. We can all be bolder in our witness to who we believe Jesus is and to what he has done for us. Unless he hasn't hasn't done all that much for us. As I've said many times, let's make sure the gospel sounds like good news. It had better. If it doesn't sound like good news as it's coming out of our lips, then we haven't gotten to the center of the gospel yet. If it sounds more like this, if it sounds more like everything in your life is wrong and sinful and needs to change, and and as it changes, it needs to look more like me, my life, more like us. That is not the gospel. That doesn't sound like good news. That sounds like condemnation and elitism. Paul was always trying to proclaim the central message of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, life instead of death. That's the good news. If Christ has not been raised, if he's still dead, then our faith and our hope is futile. But here's the gospel. If Christ has been raised, then Everything Jesus claimed is true. Death is not the enemy. The world is not our true home. Heaven is. We have nothing to fear. And especially in this current uncertain and fearful season that we find ourselves in, this is the good news. That Jesus died to give us life. That death has lost its sting By his wounds, we have been healed. Where we have no control, he is in control of all things. While we are surprised day by day, he is unfazed. Even if we are asked to endure pain and suffering and trials and hardship, we know that our God is right there with us and he's even walked ahead of us as Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He was accustomed with suffering. And so what a time to be preaching a five-part series on suffering that months ago I felt like the Lord was leading me to as we follow the journey of Paul to the end of Acts, seeing how to remain Christ-like in suffering. Today, seeing how to take opportunity in suffering, gospel opportunity, how appropriate for where we are. And our Lord will be faithful 
He is with us. He knows all about it. Remember Abraham? He too believed in the resurrection. That was his ultimate hope and his confidence for his faith. God, the God of life. God that restores life. When God asked him to do the unthinkable and sacrifice his son Isaac upon the altar, his boy, the promised one, he didn't hesitate or waver. The the next morning he got up and went in obedience, even though he could not possibly have understood what God was intending to do and how God could ask him to sacrifice his son, the son of the promise that he had waited for for so long. We know that God would eventually take him right up to the moment and then provide the ram of sacrifice in place. And what a picture that would be of Jesus coming as a substitutionary sacrifice for us. Life instead of deserved death. But that's not what Abraham had expected. What his belief was wasn't that God at the last moment would tell him he had different plans. He was just testing him. He was going to provide the ram. That's not how Abraham operated in faith in response to God's call. The author of Hebrews tells us where his faith rested. On God's resurrection power. Hebrews eleven seventeen, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The center and the foundation of Abraham's faith and hope was in the resurrection, God's power over death and his promise of life. Paul was just reminding all the Jews who were listening to him, who were accusing him, that they too believed this. At least they should have. Abraham was their father after all. Acts 26.6 Now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which the twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, I think we know what Paul means. He was reminding them of their history and their heritage. In fact, they did believe in the resurrection power of God. Life instead of death. Life through death. But we can take some exception with Paul, though we're hesitant to do so. But this is an incredible thought. Where he says, why is it such an incredible thought? I would say it is the most incredible thought of all. That the resurrection of Jesus is incredible. Jesus made it central to his teaching. He prepared the disciples over and over again that it was what was expected and needed. It was his path and his pursuit. Where do we think Paul learned it? Perhaps the best picture in the Gospels of it is John 11, when Jesus allows his dear friend Lazarus to die in order to prove life power in and through him and to be a picture of what was coming 
soon for him upon the cross and through the grave. This is John eleven twenty five. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. Remember that Martha said this while her brother Lazarus was lying dead in a tomb. She believed in the coming resurrection power of God for her brother, for all who believe, but she didn't believe Jesus was going to raise him that day. And in a moment, she would. We only need a faith like Martha's. But oh, to have a faith like Abraham's that is so grounded on the resurrection power of God that it can walk through anything without being shaken. To have a faith like that in a time like this We can and we should pray for it, but are we ready for the path that we must walk to get there? Lord, make us ready. Lord, grow our faith. Give us faith, even like Martha's, to believe in your resurrection power, but grow it to be faith like Abraham, who would be unwavering regardless of what you ask of us. We all must die in order to live. In that case, death is a gift. And that's why death has lost its sting. Because it is through death to these fleshly, earthly tents that we are raised into the fullness of life. This is why the symbolism of baptism is so important. What a picture of the old being gone and the new having come, being buried with Christ, being raised unto life again, washed and cleansed through the blood of Christ. And so we celebrate rightly and honor that picture because of what Jesus has done. And Paul made it central to his preaching. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's been born again, just as Jesus said in John 3. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Not everyone will believe this message. I wonder as you're listening, as you're hearing this, do you believe it? Would you ask for that belief? Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. I hope you hear it as good news. I hope our world hears it as good news. Life instead of death. Death has no sting because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and through the tomb, rising again. We must get to the center point of the gospel. We must get to that place. The response may be, it's too good to be true. I simply cannot believe it. But we must at least proclaim the center point of the gospel. Hear this again if you're listening. This is God's love for you. No matter what you have done or haven't done, no matter who you are or who you aren't, you are loved by God. 
No matter what you do in the future or fail to do, you are loved and forgiven by Christ if you turn to him. No matter how much fear or anxiety or uncertainty you face, you can know peace. No matter how much pain or suffering you may be asked to endure, you can have hope. I want to encourage you who are suffering. I want to encourage you who are facing pain or sickness or watching loved ones endure it, experiencing grief and loss or opposition and oppression. Remember that your testimony for the love and hope and peace and freedom of Jesus may be most powerful as you endure suffering, that light shines most brightly in the darkness. What an opportunity, this moment that we're in. What a gospel opportunity. People may think that we're out of our mind, and so we find ourselves in good company. But they will be watching, and they will be listening. What will we say? What will we do? I remember telling my good friend Cody, after he was paralyzed at 27 in an automobile accident, paralyzed from the chest down, Cody was one of the most gifted musicians and worship leaders I've ever been blessed under as a close friend, watching him come to Christ and grow in Christ. And this wasn't immediate. This was months and months later as he was wrestling with the reality of God not healing him. And I remember saying to him, Cody, you you have a whole new platform to preach. You preached through your music and through your songs Perhaps God will restore that, perhaps not, but your, your platform to preach has now significantly increased. I can walk into a room or onto a stage and not even think about stepping up, up a few steps, and I can easily be dismissed when I proclaim the love, the goodness, and the blessings of God and I told my friend Cody, you, when you roll onto a stage and begin to proclaim the goodness and the love of God, every eye and ear will be tuned to you. We don't pray for suffering or persecution to come. We pray for faithfulness and endurance if and when it comes. Lord, help us be faithful and to endure. Thank you, Jesus. You are the resurrection and the life. Help us believe Help us proclaim it at every opportunity like the one that we find ourselves in today and even in the midst of suffering. May we not lose hope or grow weary, but look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Those whose hope is in the Lord will run and not grow weary. They will walk on and not faint. Let me pray for us and pray for you. Father God, we thank you so much for being faithful, for being good, for being present with us, to never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, in this moment, you are calling us to prayer. You're bringing us to our knees. We are calling out in desperation upon you day by day. And all of this is a good thing. So take what is painful and evil 
and suffering and bring it to good. Awaken your church, Lord. Awaken us. I pray, Lord, for the opportunities to proclaim the hope of the gospel. And may it sound like good news. Teach us, Lord. Renew in us the truth of the gospel, the center point of the gospel, life instead of death, the hope we have in Jesus beyond the now for all eternity. Lord, our world is in desperate need to hear of your saving grace, of your healing power, and your forever hope for those who put their trust in you, Jesus. May it sound too good to be true. It does. And then bring many sons and daughters to believe it and see their lives transformed with a hope, a peace, a love, and a joy that they never thought possible. May it be, Lord. Lead us and guide us in these uncertain times. Help us to communicate, to connect, and bring us to a place where we can gather freely again. Jesus, we pray, come. Lord Jesus, come. We need you. and We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're listening online and in a church service format, then listen to the response, worship, and sing these prayers, just as we do when we gather on Sundays. Perhaps share a a little bit of communion together. Find some bread. Hit the pause button. Find some bread and some juice. I sent out a little bit of a, uh, an outline or a liturgy you could follow along if you want to take some extended time or you can just continue the rhythm of responding to the truth of the gospel, the hope in him and what Jesus has done by sharing the communion meal as family or even as an individual, knowing you are not alone. You may be sitting in your, in your home or in a room uh, all by yourself right now. Maybe you're listening to this while gardening or doing some other activity. You are not alone. You are part of a great community. And let's not forget that. The enemy would like to isolate us, to divide us, and to distract. And we say no. We say we are unified we are moving forward. We are advancing. It may look differently, but we will not grow weary. Love you, church. Look forward to seeing you soon.